This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, for decades, people have associated Scandinavian countries with social democracy, with orderly, uh, law-abiding societies, with what might be called reasonable, compassionate government. But things have changed, and the election in Sweden last Sunday week, eight days ago, illustrated how much things have changed in Sweden. The outgoing government, led by Magdalena Andersson, a very popular politician, she was forced to submit her resignation on Thursday because while her party got the most votes, a combination of right-wing parties, one of them positively troubling, have a majority and should be able to form a government, although that hasn't happened yet. We're joined now by... Philip O'Connor. Philip is an Irish journalist who's lived and worked in Sweden for a long time, over 20 years. Philip, thank you very much for joining us. I, I must say I was shocked to see the results of this because the party that's called the Swedish Democrats, in fact, have their roots in, in neo-Nazism. And it looks like Sweden is going to have a right-wing government, uh, there's a centre-right party called the Moderates. So, uh, where are we? Yeah, no government has been formed yet. No, uh, they're actually talking about it. As you and I speak, Eamon, they're doing what, what's called doing the rounds, doing the speaker's rounds, it's called in Swedish. So, the Speaker of the House would have spoken to Ulf Kristersson, the singularly unimpressive leader of the Moderate Party, and said, look, at the way it looks after the election, you look like you have the most support. So, I'm going to ask you to try to form a government. Now, that support, it's not that huge, right? So, Magdalena Andersson would have got, you know, a little more than 48.5% for her block. So, that would be the Social Democrats, the Green Party, the Left Party, which is the former Communist Party, and the Centre Party, which is very much a sort of an agrarian, you know, a farmer's party is the way they would be traditionally viewed. They have about 48.5%, a little more than 48.5%. With about 49.5% is this uh, group of right-wing parties led by Ulf Christensen and the Moderates. But the Moderates are no longer the biggest party in that bloc. That's actually the Sweden Democrats. Now, the 
Sweden Democrats, as you rightly mentioned, there's, there's no denying where they come from. So with certain populist parties, you can say, yeah, they're, they're far right or they're populist. Or this. These are neo-Nazis, Eamon. The party used to be called Keep Sweden Swedish. So if you remember the time in the 70s and the 80s that the National Front were involved in British politics, this is who these guys are. Essentially, right. they've swapped the bomber jackets and the bomber boots for suits and slightly sharper haircuts, but they're still the same people. And it kind of bothers me that I saw them described on the BBC as being ex-neo-Nazis, but I would say there's ex, there's nothing ex about them. This is still who they are, but they just look slightly different. So the meat and potatoes of it is now that Ulf Christus and the leader of the moderate party, who are now the second largest party on the right, they were traditionally, you know, Sweden's Fine Gael, they would have been one of the bigger parties, and they always would have led the, sort of the right wing of, of, of block politics, if you like. But now it's actually the Sweden Democrats who are the biggest party there. So what people were sort of hoping for, hoping for, I suppose, in inverted commas, was that Christensen would lead a, a government of the moderate party with the Christian Democrats, who aren't very Christian, and the Liberal Party, who are definitely not very liberal, in a sort of a minority government that's not alien to Sweden. We often have these minority governments with the kind of confidence and supply arrangement that you're seeing in Irish politics for the last few years, for instance. But now the Sweden Democrats, as the second biggest party in the country, are demanding to be part of the government. Now, I think on some level they know that there's very little chance of them actually sort of uh, holding any formal power. They're not going to have Yimmy Orkison, the party leader, as a prime minister. But what they will do, regardless of whether they're inside or outside the government, is they will wield enormous power with 20.54% of the votes. That's the votes of one in five Swedes at the last election. Now, the popular outgoing prime minister, Magdalena Anderson, her left-wing coalition, they just lost the election by a three-seat majority when the final results were, were tallied. But they're obviously, well, they look like they're out. And what's surprising, Philip, is when you read this in the context of what's happening in Norway, in Finland and Denmark, and for example, at this moment, Sweden and Finland are applying to join NATO, which has been, which is the result, of course, of Putin's aggression in Ukraine, but also Sweden in, in the EU. And as I say, we've all had th this impression that Scandinavia was a sort of a beacon of reasonable democratic consensus. What has changed in the last decade? Because clearly we don't understand well, I think a lot of it comes down, you know, I mean, I always hate to blame the losers in this, but I would say that, you know, we look exactly as you said there. For years, we looked at the Nordic region as a beacon of social democracy. In the post-war period, the social democratic politics was extremely strong. The, the social democrats in Sweden enjoyed a very long period of almost unbroken rule in Sweden, where they created what they called the people's home. And that was the vision of Olaf Palme and Tage Erlanda before him, that they would create a place, you know, a social welfare net through which no one would fall, that mm. everybody would have such a high basic standard of living that nobody would want for anything else, you know. But I think there was a change that happened, Eamon, in the 1990s, not just in, in Scandinavia, but it was sort of led by Tony Blair and New Labour and this idea that social democratic politics could be all things to all people. Right? Yeah. It could be, you know, a friend to the worker, but it could also be a friend to business. And things started to change there that, you know, maybe it's okay with a bit of privatisation. Maybe the free market is not so bad after 
after all. And what it started to do then was it started to abandon its own principles of looking after the weakest in society, of ensuring that taxes remained high so that the level of services could remain high. And you can either have one or the other. You can either have a high level of taxation, a high level of service, or you can have a low level of taxation, a low level. You can't have low taxes and high levels of service. Yeah, it was called the third way. I mean, Clinton and Blair invented this triangulation or third way, whatever you want to call it. It does appear, and I was looking at Denmark's immigration policy, for example. Immigration is, is the immigration at the heart of this, not just in Sweden, but in its Scandinavian neighbors. It is indeed, Eamon. And look, it's such a broad and complex subject. The reason that the Sweden Democrats are in government is because of immigration. They are an anti-immigration party. 20%, I should say, 20.5% of the vote. Yeah, went to these guys. Exactly. But you know what the interesting thing is, Eamon, right? Um, When you go to small towns and places, as I tend to do before these elections, and you talk to people, right? There's this sense of disconnect between what people have grown up with, people of of our age and maybe a little bit younger have grown up with, and what Sweden has come to be, right? So what this election really was, was a referendum on the changes that have happened in Sweden over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, right? But we see those things as being only framed in terms of immigration. It's funny the way you'll often hear the thing on the right, oh, you're never allowed to discuss immigration in this country, in this region, right? When in fact, people never discuss anything else. Immigration is constantly spoken about. Integration is constantly spoken yes. about. So it's always on the agenda. Well, what's not spoken about is the broader context, right? So if you take Clinton, Clinton's third way, or the third way that social democracy seemed to adapt in, in the 1990s, what was squeezed out there was public ownership of, of services, right? Yes. Of schools, of hospitals, and that kind of thing, right? So all of those things went from being sort of, you know, for the people to being for-profit enterprises. And naturally, these things started to go down because the state is saying, we're going to spend the same amount of money, but in order for somebody to be able to derive a profit from that, they have to cut back somewhere, right? And also, you, you can squeeze the trade unions out. Exactly, yeah. Therefore, workers' representation, and that's where you see the real rot yeah, exactly. So the, the, the Social Democrats would have lost an awful lot of voters to the Sweden Democrats. And you would have thought that why are left-wing people or people who are sensibly trade unionists or left-wingers voting for a, you know, a far-right party? Well, the reason is that the Sweden Democrats have been very clever in saying, look, at you know, we'll restore all these so- social welfare benefits, never saying how they will do it, but we also want to limit immigration. They are blaming immigrants for, you know, the fact that sort of, if you like natural-born Swedes or people whose people have been here for generations don't don't enjoy the same level of services. Now, that's not entirely true. The reason that people don't enjoy the same level of services is because taxation has gone down due to two periods of a centre-right government and another one in the 1990s that started all these sell-offs. So what you're getting is not the full... Like the Immigration, there's an awful lot of immigration in Sweden. We mentioned before about the 163,000 uh, people that Sweden took in in the height of the refugee crisis five or six years ago. Um, we talk often about integration here uh, and, and how difficult it is for people to integrate into society here. But these are two-way things. So often people who come to this country, you have to start at the very bottom rung of the ladder. And many people in Swedish society, no matter how good you are, how educated you are, how much you want to defend for yourself, you're actually just not allowed in. There's a, a, threshold, a threshold over which you won't be allowed to step because they simply don't want to let you into that thing. And these are the things that aren't really looked at. But they're not the messages that go home with an election campaign. It's much easier to take... Take this simple idea of, yeah, no, we want to control 
immigration even more than what we have done. And what we've seen is a complete reversal, a complete about-face, if you like. In Denmark, there's now a situation whereby refugees, people who are entitled to protection under international law, are being told, your valuables will be seized at the border. You know, yes. this kind of absolutely wild stuff that's, that's happening. And that's where Sweden has gone. From Stefan Levin, the former prime minister, himself a former union man, a former welder, a former union negotiator, saying that, you know, my country does not build walls, to having what is actually one of the most repressive regimes for seeking asylum and seeking uh, refuge in the world at the moment. Yes, and when Britain decided to export refugees who came across the channel to Rwanda a few weeks ago, uh, which was uh, offensive and shocking to many people, uh, they pointed out, Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, pointed out that the Danes were about to do the same thing or had been doing the same thing. That is, when people arrived um, as immigrants or illegal immigrants, as they were deemed, they'd export them to Africa from whence they came. Yeah, the, the Danes were actually looking at placing people on an island which had previously been used for animals that had all sorts of infectious diseases that weren't common to Denmark and they were quarantined there. And the imagery of that itself, Eamon, yes. tells you where the debate is in Scandinavia about immigration. I mean, frankly, it's sickening to hear the way people are spoken about. And I'd advise you and your listeners, if you have a chance, uh, there's a book written by an Irish journalist called Sally Hayden called My Fourth Time We Drowned. And if you haven't read that book yet, I'd suggest you get your hands on it because yes. it's an ex excellent explanation of fortress Europe and how this failure to deal with the EU being a single block of states and people trying to make their way from uh, from the Middle East and from Africa uh, to Italy primarily, but also to Greece and to, to places like that. That you know th that how that policy is or is not working is really like that has a knock on effect effect for what's happening in Scandinavia as well. But really, you know, the, the fact that the debate could be in that position, you know, this othering that happens with refugees. As I say, people are entitled to seek shelter from wars in Syria, wars in Afghanistan, often wars that we created. But that'll tell you a lot about why Scandinavia and indeed Britain, as you mentioned, have wound up with the policies that they wound up with. The problem is distinguishing between people who are fleeing political persecution and people who are simply economic migrants. Well, I think it's not even making that distinction, Eamon. I think the problem is that there's no way for anybody to get into Europe that's not dangerous, right? It's so extremely difficult for people. If you want to come from, you know, from certain countries, there's no, uh, there's very few embassies in Iran, for instance. So if you want to yes. come from Iran to Sweden or whatever, and there's an awful lot, an awful lot of my neighbours would be from that part of the world. Um, you'll have seen there recently, I think there's a horrible story over the weekend where basically Iran's morality police beat a woman uh, to the extent that she died over the weekend yes, she wasn't so, wearing a hijab yes. properly, right? Now, how, like, and I, I hate to take, a, you know, hard cases make bad laws, the saying goes, well, how does that person take themselves from Iran here? How does that woman prove? How does her family prove, et cetera, et cetera? There's no way she would have to present in Stockholm or in Malmo or in Copenhagen to be able to avail of international protection. But how does she get here? How does she get here? To, you know, and this is where you wind up in that situation that's described so brilliantly in Sally Hayden's book. And so, you know, even before we get to the point of, okay, because, you know, all those discussions about, you know, who deserves to be here and who doesn't. We built up this system and the same thing exists. I was recently in America and you have to stand there and you have to explain why you're there and fill in the, you're like, I mean, there's no such thing as such, even for us who are EU citizens as freedom of movement. At the end of the day, somebody's always going to tap you on the shoulder and ask you why you're there. Now, if the Sweden Democrats, who are the neo-Nazis, are getting 20% of the vote, then Sweden has a problem. What is their program? Is there for example, anti-Semitism 
Is it simply anti-immigration in the broader racist sense of it, cultural sense of it, or is it a promise to the workers that they're about to enter paradise? Uh, it, it's about 5% of the latter and 95% of the former, right? So when I said that these, you know, when I object to the BBC describing them as ex-neo-Nazis, that's exactly who they are. So last week, uh, there was a member of a Jewish organization went on TV and said that he found it very worrying that, you know, one in five Swedes could vote for for uh, for a neo-Nazi party or a party with its roots in the neo-Nazi movement. And needless to say, that person was threatened and the abuse they got online, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the anti-Semitism is, is kept... It's thinly veiled. It's always there. There's always this talk about globalists because nobody will use the word Jews anymore, right? So it's everything is a conspiracy and they're always yes. behind it. But that's kept thinly veiled. The anti-Muslim racism is much more naked. Anti-African racism is much more naked. And you'll see that, like, the articles that they produce in their very ch- various channels on YouTube and on Facebook, and they're absolutely filled with these things. In the run-up to the election, I think just about a week before the election, it was revealed that about two, a little over 200 candidates in the Sweden Democrats had written or posted or been part of like openly racist groups didn't make any difference, Eamon. People still went out and voted for them, right? So there's this idea, and you spoke of your shock at this at the very beginning. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm shocked. I've seen this coming over the last 20 years. It's kind of like boiling the frog. The temperature has been rising in Scandinavia over the last little while, but I kind of noticed it early on. The fact that one in five Swedes would vote for them is, is extremely worrying in itself, right? But the fact is that Ulf Kistesen, the leader of the moderate party, went out and said, he actually lied to a Holocaust survivor. He told her that his, what was formerly called the Alliance, this bloc of right-wing parties, would never have anything to do with the Sweden Democrats. And a year later, in 2019, he reversed course. And then he started to talk about maybe bringing them in from the cold. Then the liberals, uh, the not-so-liberal liberals and the not-so-Christian Christian Democrats jumped on board that train as well. So not only do you have 20%, one in five Swedes who are prepared to vote for them, you have another 30%, another three in 10 people who are kind of okay with giving them a say in Swedish politics. Yes. Now, what kept Sweden sort of safe from neo-Nazism previously was the likes of the centre party leader, Annie Love, who recently resigned. She said no, and her no meant no. And the abuse that she got, I mean, she was specifically targeted by these people for the most relentless of abuse to the point where a neo-Nazi called Theo Engström tried to murder her in July of this year. And it stuns me, Eamon, that we don't talk about these people, about about these situations. Another woman was murdered in V on the island of Gotland. I think I actually spoke to you uh, on my way from that island at one point about the NATO uh, issue and when Sweden was joining there. It was on my way when we spoke there. There's always a, what they call a politics week of, uh, there every every July and politicians go there. And Theo Engström stabbed a woman to death there. His real target was the leader of the centre party. It was a, basically a political assassination and we don't hear anything about it. And even with that knowledge, because very unusually his name is known to people in Sweden, but even knowing who he is and why he did what he did in July of this year, people still went and voted for them. So we're past the point where this is a sort of a logical thing. This is a very emotional vote, which is driven by anger, I would say, primarily. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Tell me about the media in Sweden in particular or Scandinavia in general. Everywhere we see these views being given expression, the media is a major part and a major viewing ground where all these things pass through in front of your eyes. Yeah, I mean, that was the unusual part of it. And it was sort of, you know, the mistaken inverted commas, if you like, um, that, that the media in the Nordic region, not just in Sweden, has made. So in the last 20 years or so, it has become more and more acceptable to say kind of, the kind of things that absolutely would be unthinkable in Palme's time, right? And there's this idea, uh, Eamon, that somehow that, you know, you'll hear this expression that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And indeed, it was something I believed myself for a long time as well. Yeah. That if you drag these people into the marketplace of ideas, that then your logical and compassionate arguments for human dignity will beat them and it won't right and this right. is one of those things that's fascinating because what when you're arguing with a neo-nazi you're not arguing with them they're not there you know because they think that you know they can convince you or anything else they've no interest in that no. what they're looking for is access to your audience and yes. the media has gone and sort of provide and indeed sometimes when they get sort of you know rings run around them by you know some clever journalist or some clever uh, panel debate leader on tv it actually works in their favor because their voters are looking at that going oh you know there's that smart fella up in stockholm but he doesn't know what's happening out here in the country countryside, you know? Yeah. There's there's an American academic called Whitney Phillips, and a few years ago she wrote a paper called The Oxygen of Publicity, which explains this dynamic. You know, essentially, and what worked so well in Sweden for so long was basically leaving them out in the cold, right? I have said before, when it comes to these debates and that, and you'd often be asked to go on the radio or television here, and I may have even said it to your good self, but I'm, I'm just not going to debate the rights and the dignity of other human beings. I am not going to debate the right of gay people to exist and to love who they want. Yeah. 
Yeah. I am not going to debate the right of a refugee to come to Europe and to seek and protect. I'm just not going to do it. But in allowing that to happen, basically what you're doing is you're allowing them to play the game in your half of the field, right? So they're there. They're dominating this whole debate, right? This, you know, for me, the election should have been about NATO. That has gone far too quickly for many people's liking. It should have been about COVID that you and I have talked about countless yes. times in this podcast. Not even mentioned, Damon. The name of Anders Tegnell, our good friend here, the former state epidemiologist, never once came up. But it was immigration, immigration, immigration. It was crime, crime, crime. There, There is a problem uh, at the moment in Sweden, and, we, and it would be unfair not to point it out, with gang crime, right? No more yes. than, you know, we have our, our gang, uh, our criminal gangs in Ireland. There is a problem with these young fellas going around dealing drugs and shooting one another. But yes. violent crime has actually gone down over the last 20 odd years. And none of this comes up because, as I say, uh, the Sweden Democrats are being allowed to play their game and to, to you know to talk about their policies to talk right. about their things and the rest of the parties are they just let them where do the sweden democrats stand on the question of nato membership which finland and sweden have both are both seeking uh, I think they went for reasonably quiet on that subject because, you know, it's, it's one of those things, you know, never interrupt their opponent while they're making a mistake, you know. So they yeah. sort of stayed out of all that. And now they're going to, you know, I'm sure, like, you know, they, they would have been uh, on the side of Putin very much, in, uh, you know, for the last sort of 10 years or so, like many, like Orban and Hungary and like part yes. certain parties in Poland, that kind of thing. So they've actually kept very quiet on that front. So again, you know, this is the thing of, you know, they kept the discussion away from their weaknesses. Now, the Swedish parliament has decided that, you know, the, the application process has started. So they'll have to row in behind that. But they kept that very, very quiet because, again, that's an area of weakness for them. They don't want these things, their relationships to other far-right parties and far-right regimes being talked about, you know? So that's why, you know, they, they sort of stayed away from that discussion as much as possible. But I'd say that they're sort of, you know, toward... And again, like many far-right parties, they would be in favour of increasing spending on the military and, you know, building this strong nation that they say doesn't exist anymore again. Let me ask you about their links the Sweden Democrats in particular, but also uh, the other uh, right-wing parties. Uh, do they have links to other parties like them elsewhere in Scandinavia? And also, I mean, there's an election due in Italy, which looks like it's going to return basically a fascist government or a, a fascist party at the head of government. Do they see things in, the, in, in that wider context uh, in other words, that this is a changing Europe. They're on the road to success. They are, if you like, reflecting a mood that isn't just in Scandinavia, but in Hungary, uh, in Italy, we'll see in two or three weeks' time, probably something even worse than what has turned up in Sweden. Yeah, I definitely think that they believe that they this is an idea whose time has come, so to speak. Yes. They were always big fans of Orban, and indeed one or two sort of higher ups uh, within the party. When they were found out, you know, and certain things were revealed about them in the media, they very seldom resigned. They very seldom kick people out of the party. They talk about having a zero tolerance towards racism, anti-Semitism that exists at the the grassroots level, right? You know, so if you just join the party and you're found to post something on Facebook, you'll get kicked out. The higher up you go, the harder it is to get yes. rid of you. That said, one or two people have been forced to resign and they have actually moved to Hungary and they set up bases of operations on behalf of the party there. So they would have very strong links to Fidesz, the Orban's party in Hungary. They would have extremely strong links in the Nordic region. Right Now, this is a huge sprawling story, the last 20 years of the rise of the far right in Sweden. But it has always been very internet-based. It has always been very sort of, you know, discussion board-based. There's always been a sort of a sharing of information there. And if you go back to the attacks carried out by Anders Bede 
in Breivik in Oslo and Utøya back in 2011. A lot of the stuff that he published in his manifesto, which was a thousand pages of absolute garbage, but a lot of that was harvested from similar thinkers in the Nordic region. And the Sweden Democrats would be very much part of that sphere. So, you know, you're dealing with people who have, this hasn't appeared overnight, right? It's not something that just popped up and all yes. of a sudden. Because from about 2000 onwards, the Sweden Democrats doubled their share of the vote from 0.5 or 1% uh, to the point where they finally got into the, the parliament. You have to get 4% or over for your in a national election for your party to, be, to take its seats in parliament here, or you have to get 12% in one local district. So that rules out, you know, the rural independence. It rules out, you know, having political independence in the chamber for the very most part. So 2010, I was in the room with them the night that they were elected for the first time with 5.7%. The next time they doubled their, their vote again, and then they went up to, I think, 17.5% in 2018, and now 20.5% in 2020. But this has come over time. This is very much organic growth. And they've seen the things that worked and they've stuck to them. And they have been traditional right-wing things. And I suppose traditional right-wing elements of fascism, fascism as well. Law and order, immigration control, government spending, uh, you know, the state, the strong yes. state. The state is the arbiter of everything and everybody needs to be, you know, loyal to the state. But just to go back to your point, one of the things I completely forgot about there was one of the Sweden Democrats representatives, I think was uh, Bjorn Söder, who became the um, the vice speaker of the house back in was it 2018 or 2014? It's a long time ago now. But this is a man who said that Jews can't really be Swedish. You know, so these yeah. things are, are always near the surface. And again, these are things that you will hear in political discourse in places like Italy, in places like Poland, uh, in places like Hungary at the moment. You know, so it's very, very close to the surface. Okay, Philip, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the stand. That's uh, Philip O'Connor. We're grateful to him, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change. 